Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about Trump's recently proposed budget and rule changes targeting the most vulnerable recipients of Social Security and Medicaid benefits. The budget isn't likely to pass a democratically controlled House as is, but it's still very valuable to understand what kind of budget and rules Trump and the GOP would pass if they were in complete power. Clips today come from The Real News, Now This News, Off Kilter, This Is Hell, Counterspin, and The Majority Report. Let's listen to, to your friend Donald Trump for just a moment and talk about deficits and debts and what they really mean. You know, I'm the king of debt. I understand debt better than probably anybody. It's literally first grade business. It's so simple. Hundreds of billions of dollars of money, and let's call it tax money, could come from other countries when we stop them from ripping us off. So you wouldn't have to play around with Medicaid and Medicare and things that really are dear to people's heart. If you look at some of these agencies, how big and fat they are, you can cut and have them run better than they're running right now. When I heard... We were going to Iraq. Somebody said, oh, we're going for the oil. I said, huh, that makes sense. That's smart. Fifteen trillion dollars. That does a lot to solve our deficit problem, doesn't it? I'd like to pay off debt. I'd like to do a lot of it and pay interest. Well, as we got a lot of it. We do. And we're going to start reducing costs now that we took care of our military. So that's Donald Trump trying to explain deficits and debts over the last nine years. Bill, so talk a bit about, I mean, one of the things we've talked about over the time together is that you, you don't necessarily see deficits as a bad thing, but talk about the comparison between what you're talking about with deficits and what he's doing. All right. The thing that's consistent in all of those vignettes is that Trump knows absolutely nothing about business, absolutely nothing about economics, absolutely nothing about deficits. He was mushing together a whole bunch of different things. So he knows a little bit about owing money to people because he owes it, you know, uh, tremendous amounts of money and he stiffs them. He stiffs the banks, he stiffs the workers, uh, et cetera, et cetera. He goes, files for bankruptcy. And eventually, the bankers cut you off in those circumstances if you don't pay your debt. And that's why we've done series in the past that the only entity that will loan to him still is arguably the most corrupt bank in the world, Deutsche Bank. Uh, so that's his aspect of finances. Then he goes through a bunch of things, including trade, that have nothing to do with uh, deficits uh, in terms of budget. And then he goes through this idea, hey, if we just stole other people's property, right, then we'd have a lot more property and we'd be richer. Um, you know, we steal their oil, except that A, violates all the rules of war, and B, people tend to fight back. Uh, and you end up spending billions, indeed trillions of dollars, and losing uh, hundreds of thousands of lives. So this is just all the stupidity, the you know, lack of care about humans, the unwillingness to read a briefing paper uh, if it's longer than a, literally one paragraph. What is different is federal deficits, when you have a sovereign currency like the United States, have, with a broad range, not very much to do with producing inflation. And we've seen that, of course. Uh, Trump has run very, very large deficits, unemployment, has been, in fact, at historically low levels, and inflation 
it hasn't even reached the tiny amount that the Federal Reserve wants, says, makes the economy work better. So the inflation isn't the problem. The deficit per se isn't the problem. The problem is twofold. One, Trump doesn't spend things where we should be spending things, like on helping poor people, like on building infrastructure, like on dealing with climate disruption and such. And he does spend money stupidly on things like his wall and such. So that isn't a deficit question. That is a stupidity question. We can't afford to do do dumb things with real resources. When we create his wall, we absolutely waste resources. And that's a dumb thing that we should stop. So and when you look at this, and Alex, may bring you in here. I mean, when, you, when you look at this, this what he just did here, um, increasing military spending by just 0.3% to $740.5 billion, uh, while lowering uh, the non-defense budget by 5% uh, to $590 billion. The interesting part here to me is that when he does this and makes this horrible slashing of things, um, is that, and we'll get into that in a moment, is that what we forget about is that last July... We increased the military budget more than it has been since the Vietnam and Korean War. The Democrats signed on to that because they said he wasn't going to cut social services, he wasn't going to cut these programs, and he wasn't going to cut Social Security. But in fact, that's what he's done. So they got, they got hoodwinked into an old budget to increase military spending, and now they're stuck with this new budget. So, I mean, this is, there's a history to why this is happening this way as well that I think is important to remember. So, so what, give us your perception of this. Uh, So I think that the president's budget, which um, is a statement of his values, is really clear. Um, It's pandering to defense contractors uh, and Wall Street billionaires. So it has it basically decimates uh, Medicaid, almost a trillion dollar in cuts to Medicaid, the largest provider of long term care in this country. Um, It cuts tens of billions of dollars out of Social Security, uh, around three quarters of a trillion dollars out of Medicare. Uh, And the list of programs that have cuts that would be existential goes on and on. Um, And those are all aimed at satisfying his sort of uh, two criteria or two prong criteria. They have to be both stupid uh, and cruel. So it has to be cruel in that it really hurts people. Right. Uh, But it has to be stupid because, you know, supposedly it has something to do with the deficit. Uh, But all of these uh, cuts are penny wise, pound foolish. They would actually cost way more money in the long run or in Social Security's case, have absolutely nothing to do with the deficit. Uh, So what we're looking at is why the congressional Democrats ever uh, bargain in good faith with the congressional Republicans is beyond me. Um, But I would say that the president's budget is is separate from that conversation in many respects. Um, But it definitely shows you exactly where um, the Republican Party's vision is. It's, It's why Donald Trump goes out of his way to lie about what he actually proposes, you know, in the days before releasing it, he says he's not going to cut Social Security and Medicare, as you know, you noted, but he does exactly that. And this is what he had to say at Davos. Entitlements ever be on your plate? At some point they will be. It'll be toward the end of the year. The growth is going to be incredible. And at the right time, we will take a look at that. You know, that's actually the easiest of all things, if you look. 
because it's such if a you're willing percentage. to do some of the things that you said you wouldn't do in the past, though, in terms of Medicare. Well, we're going to look. We also have uh, assets that we never had. I mean, we never had growth like such a disingenuous human being at best. I mean, when, when you know, when we say that the, that just curious me to ask you both this question is what you just said, Alex. Um, but when you, when we say that that uh, uh, what happened last July, I mean, it seems to me in many ways. The Democrats were, some of them, a lot of the most progressive Democrats, were complicit in this because they thought they had a deal. That we'll give you all this money for the military, which they shouldn't have done in the first place, many people would argue, as long as you don't cut this. And so, why would, I mean, they, they, they were set up, and now we are facing this battle that's going to take place uh, in the midst of an election where I can see them shutting down government, other things happening, to battle over this budget. So this, I mean, this, this budget is going to play out in 2020 which is going to be a very tense and tight election. So who wants to go? Bill, you want to jump in this first and go to Alex? Okay, so uh, first, it's, of course, a reminder of why appeasement strategies, when you're dealing with dishonest, awful, evil people, uh, never work. As Churchill said, the idea is you feed the crocodile uh, other people hoping that, you know, that uh, he'll get too full and won't eat you at the end of the process. <laughs> well, guess what? He'll get around to you eventually uh, in these circumstances. Uh, so yes, the whole Biden thing about I can work with people is just a sucker strategy in these circumstances when people aren't honest that you're bargaining with, then they take what you give the first time and they uh, take the second time. Uh, they, they From their view, you're not reasonable, you're a chump. And they love to take advantage of chumps. Second point, this is a political gift to Democrats if they take it. If they, right? if they take it. If they take it, right, and then run with it, because this is horrific stuff, uh, absolutely indefensible, uh, and the Democrats need to be talking about this uh, every day. Uh, you know, the, But the third thing is it really displays Trump's true base, right? So the, the base that the people usually talk about are the faces at his MAGA rallies, right? And they're the faces of people who are typically don't have, you know, uh, all that much money, all that much education, and they're screaming, ranting, and raving. That is a base, and it's critical to his ability to win elections. But the, the real base of Donald Trump is the absolute sleaziest CEOs in the world, um, primarily Americans, but not exclusively Americans. That's why the tax cut was his top priority and why the tax cut was unbelievably weighted towards the wealthiest people. There's an interesting Pew study of the really, really rich people, and they're different than normal people. The deficits really supposedly drive them crazy, but what really, really drive them crazy is the idea of anybody poor getting money, right? So they hate the entitlement programs and such. And then in particular, they hate Medicaid because that goes to poorer people and food right. stamps because that goes to poorer people and such. And therefore, it is no um, coincidence that after first doing the massive payoff to that base, the, the kleptocratic wealthy, Trump is then following through with their greatest desires, which is a combination of screwing the poor, but also taking all the protections away, like the EPA. 
And so it's no surprise that he's absolutely destroying the ability of the EPA, just not, not just now, but for all time is his goal to protect the public. I have patients that I see in the emergency department taking their insulin every other day, patients on Medicare who can't afford their basic needs. Been an emergency physician for nearly two decades of my life and uh, heard reports today out of Davos, Switzerland, while Donald Trump is with some of the richest people in the entire world, he is talking about cutting Medicare in his second term if he gets reelected. Entitlements ever be on your plate? Uh, at some point they will be. This is a promise he made when he ran in 2016 that he would not cut Medicare. And uh, now he is talking about breaking that promise. This to help impact a deficit that he created with the massive tax cuts he and the Republican Party gave away to multinational corporations and billionaires. Um, I have patients that I see in the emergency department taking their insulin every other day, patients on Medicare who can't afford their basic needs uh, as my patients, uh, patients who are bargaining with me not to be admitted to the hospital because of copays they can't afford. We need to hold them accountable. At the Committee to Protect Medicare, we are doing just that. Please, please join us, work with us, hold this administration accountable for their broken promises on health care. I dare. One last question. Go ahead. Entitlements ever be on your plate? Uh, at some point, they will be. We have tremendous growth. We're going to have tremendous growth this next year. It'll be toward the end of the year. The growth is going to be incredible. And at the right time, we will take a look at that. You know, that's actually the easiest of all things, if you look, because it's such if a big you're willing percentage. to do some of the things that you said you wouldn't do in the past, though, in terms of Medicare. Well, we're going to look. We also have uh, assets that we never had. We want to save our Social Security and our Medicare and our Medicaid. We want to save our wealth. Save Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security without cuts. Have to do it. We will protect Medicare and we will protect your Social Security, just like I've been saying. Entitlements ever be on your plate? Uh, at some point, they will be. So, Bobby, people have spent, I think, probably more time this year on talking about some of these horrible cuts um, and probably more than I expected, given all the other things that are going on. So I, I consider that a win in terms of media coverage of, of the, the budget that is the blueprint for a second Trump term. Um, but uh, not nearly as much time, I, I would think, as is warranted on kind of how this this budget cooks the books. And that's something that you, I think, have spent more time thinking about and decoding than than probably most humans. I'm, I'm going to go. Out on the limb and say that. Um, and there's two primary ways that this budget cooks the books. Walk us through what those two ways are. Sure. So, um, <clears throat> at a very, the, uh, I'll start, I think the the bigger thing that they do is they have um, 
incredibly unrealistic economic assumptions. Um, Jason Furman, uh, President Obama's uh, former kind of chief economist, the head of his CEA, uh, the Council of Economic Advisors, uh, had a really great tweet where he was um, trying to illustrate just how outside uh, the norm uh, his economic assumptions uh, are um, the answer is they're they're wildly they're like a full percentage point they it assumes um, nearly three percent growth for forever and uh, digging into it um, uh, it it has to be coming from pr- assumed productivity growth they have higher um, labor force growth but they it's largely on the productivity side so what they're really implying is that we're going to have sustained productivity growth that we haven't seen in decades. Not temporary, but sustained productivity growth that we haven't seen in decades. That would be amazing, um, but uh, no credible people believe that. Um, and by just having year after year after year of a, of really, really, really uh, wildly optimistic uh, assumptions, that itself has huge feedback into the budget. And so um, I did kind of some first-order analysis from some of the tools that CBO um, kind of provides. Um, and by my estimates... CBO it, being the Congressional Budget Office, yeah. which kind of is, you know, a big player in all this. Right, right, right. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, uh, the Congressional Budget Office kind of gives um, rules of thumb about how changes in um, economic assumptions filter back into the budget. Um, and so I, um, I played with... Uh, uh, fixing, fixing. I, I I played with kind of putting more in line with with what everyone thinks. Uh, their productivity assumptions, their labor force assumptions, their inflation assumptions, and their interest assumptions. And by the final year of the budget window, uh, twenty third, uh, twenty thirty, uh, all of those assumptions that the Trump that the Trump budget made um, lead to the deficit being artificially uh, five hundred seventy two billion dollars lower than it would be. Right. So. We're, Half a trillion dollars of their of their savings, quote unquote. I mean, not savings because it's not policy, but of how they get to where they want to be is literally just from cooking the books and having uh, wildly unrealistic um, uh, assumptions about. Uh, and again, that's that's in one year. In in each year, they're they're giving themselves uh, this this huge. Uh, uh, this huge boost, uh, 471 billion of that is from their productivity assumptions itself. So uh, again, they just, they assume, I mean, it, and it would be great for America if, if that were true, but it's just, um, not realistic. So that's kind of one major way that their, their top line le- levels and, you know, all the Republicans who go and defend them, they say, great, President Trump is getting us back on, on track. Uh, well, if you, um, Assume three percent growth for forever. Yeah, that that does a lot of the work right there. Um, the other thing that they and before I get you to the second thing because this this one is just so important, right? And it really is kind of getting buried. It's also it's just this like blatant political move because of how much it's tied to the tax cuts for the right. wealthy and corporations, right? And so it's the kind of chart and 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 let's call it what it is. It's the kind of lie in this budget document that uh, allows uh, uh, um, someone like Mnuchin to go into a hearing. And and say with a straight face to members of Congress, yes, the tax cuts are paying for themselves. They're right on target, right? Which we just talked about with with Seth Hanlon in the previous segment, but it is so connected to this point, right? This is that kind of um, uh, 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 just made up math, right? Cooking the books is the right term um, that allows this administration and its top um, spokespeople to continue to spout lies about what is actually happening to the economy um, and to the deficit as a direct result of that tax law. 
Yeah, that's right. One thing I'll, I'll quickly say, though, is that um, if you look at their current estimates of revenue as a percent of the economy um, uh, and compare them to their estimates that they had before the tax cuts were uh, enacted, you'll notice that their current ones are a lot lower. So even, I totally agree, you're, you're totally right, they do this so they can say, yeah, see, look, we're estimating 3% forever because of our policies. Even with that, uh, they still, according to their own numbers, they're way lower uh, revenues. So, uh, yeah, great point. And you uh, were going to go into a second point. So there's a second way that the books are cooked, and this gets us back to some of that non-defense discretion. Right, right. Um, so they... <laughs> The, the, the budget is supposed to be a line by line. It's supposed to be where the president says, this is how much I'm doing on every single, um, program, uh, in the country. And, uh, the president does that for the first year in the budget for every program. But the budget is a 10 year, um, is a 10 year document. And of course they make, uh, they make statements about deficits and debt in the 10th year. Um, but, they do a bunch of, they, they do spell out quite a few cuts, but they, uh, there's a, there, they spell out a bunch of cuts, but they do not spell out close to all of their cuts. They have, what they have is a giant magic asterisk. So for non-defense discretionary, they are cutting at $1.9 trillion and they spell out $1.2 trillion of cuts. If you go line by line through all of them and add all of those cuts up, you'll get $1.2 trillion. But that means that there's a giant, um, the way that their spreadsheets work, there's a giant kind of residual that they have at the very bottom that's just extra savings that they didn't, they, they couldn't figure out they, or they didn't bother or whatever that they, they didn't allocate, which means that they, and, and to put this uh, uh, kind of in context, that's 40% of their cuts in the final year. So in the final year, by, by 2030, they say, oh gosh, we're, we're achieving this much in non-defense discretionary savings. Um, and they only got 60% of the way there. The rest of it's just a giant magic asterisk, which is A, really, really, really inappropriate. It means that they just kind of gave up or that they're relying on people not digging into it. But B, it, it also means that the cuts that they are showing are actually even deeper, um, than 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 they imply because if you say oh I'm I'm cutting this program by by some amount oh but there's another forty percent of you know cuts that need to happen well, well you know if I say oh I'm cutting I'm cutting section eight by seventy nine billion dollars that's great but there's another seven hundred eighteen billion dollar magic asterisk and some of that's going to go to section eight some of that's going to go to NIH some of that's going to go to WIC and so all of these cuts are actually even deeper they they get away with pretending their cuts are not as deep as they really are and they get away with pretending that they've done quote unquote the hard job or you know whatever of a figure out what their real policy are, and they didn't get close. Now, just allow me to take a quick moment to thank patrons, and these are the patrons who have gone above and beyond donating more than the regular membership level. So a huge thanks to Lisa P., Eileen, Dominic H., Paxton R., David D., Randon S., Michael B., Eric W., Craig B., and Nathan O. And that's just for now. I got plenty of backlog to get through. So uh, thanks so much for your continued support on the show. We could not do it without you. 
Now, for the rest of you, here's a bit of what you've been missing out on. In my most recent bonus episode, I had so much going on. Bonus clips going into detail on the Islamophobia in China and India, even deeper than we heard in the main show. We heard more about the domestic politics of giving Trump a win on trade deals. I talked about two documentaries I've watched recently about China. One, just about their general history, going specifically into the uh, the Opium War, which I, I thought was really rel- relevant to today. And then also one specifically focused on their one-child policy and the legacy of that. And I discussed some game theory that managed to find a rule better than the Golden Rule, if you can even believe it. And all of that was in just one bonus episode. So we could really use your help right now since we opted to not take advertisements from those who wanted to track your data and cram crappy pre-recorded ads into the show. And we fell short on our end-of-year membership drive at the end of last year. So if you are interested in supporting our work and getting our bonus content like what I just described, it's available for six bucks a month on Patreon. We have higher levels, like for those who I just thanked, that's for people who can afford to give more, but we also have a lower level that grants ad-free versions of every episode without the bonus content for just two bucks a month because I absolutely appreciate any dollar amount you can afford. To sign up, visit patreon.com slash left, which is linked right in the show notes on your device and on our website. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash left. Life for the poor is very different today than it was prior to neoliberalism and precarity. The social contract has been torn up and you now have to work for benefits from the state. Privatizing social services has completely changed assistance into a program that increasingly employs food as a safety net rather than addressing the real causes of poverty. Here to tell us what life is like in today's world of food insecurity, anthropologist Maggie Dickinson is author of Feeding the Crisis. Care and Abandonment in America's Food Safety Net. Welcome to This Is Hell, Maggie. Thanks so much for having me. You can follow Maggie on Twitter at Mag2D2, the number two, the letter D, and then the number two. Maggie is Assistant Professor of Interdisciplinary Studies at the City University of New York's Gutman Community College. You write, food assistance has become the leading edge of the 21st century response to growing poverty and economic insecurity. Since the turn of the millennium, there has been an unprecedented outpouring of food assistance across the United States, encompassing both federally funded food programs like SNAP, formerly referred to as food stamps, and emergency food providers like soup kitchens and food pantries. How has addressing poverty and economic insecurity changed in the 21st century? Were poverty and economic insecurity addressed in a different way in the past? And if so, uh, how was it done in the past and how is it done now? Sure. Um, So I think one of the important things for me in this research, and the reason I started it was because post-recession, there started to be news articles bubbling up about food stamps and how it was becoming a destigmatized welfare state program. And the numbers of people on food stamps were rising sort of exponentially um, in the wake of the Great Recession. And at the time, I was thinking to myself, that's not the welfare state story 
that we know in the United States. I think the story that most of us know that we hear repeated over and over is that the welfare state in the U.S. has been cut back, dismantled, made smaller, really since the Reagan era. So I started this research sort of asking the question, what's going on? Why do we have this sort of major federal uh, welfare state program that's expanding? And in fact, you have politicians saying, we want people to access food stamps, right? We think this is a positive thing um, because it struck me as so different than our understanding of how we thought about welfare for really 40 years at this point. Um, and so I think the important kind of moments here are the pre-1996, pre-welfare reform moments and how we distributed assistance to poor people in the U.S. And then what happens starting in around the year 2000, um, which is really where food assistance becomes the central piece of how we're addressing poverty and inequality here in the United States. So prior to Bill Clinton's 1996 welfare reforms, people who were out of a job and didn't have means, didn't have resources to take care of themselves, didn't have money, um, were able to apply for what we often refer to as welfare, cash assistance for poor families. And this was money that was given to people until they were able to get back on their feet, until they were able to get a job. Um, the 1996 welfare reforms, what they did primarily was two things. Time limit those benefits so people can't get them for more than five years in their lifetime. And then the other thing that they did, and the really major thing, was push this idea of welfare to work. The idea was that women in particular uh, who were on welfare assistance really should be working. And the mantra of welfare reform was that work was going to be a path out of poverty. This is how it was sold to everybody. If these women would just go into the workforce, they wouldn't be so poor. So those welfare reforms, what they did was basically force people, as you said in your intro, to work for any sort of public assistance benefits that they were getting, including food stamps. There were work requirements added to food stamps at that time, too. Of course, what happened is women in huge numbers moved off the welfare rolls, but they did not find any relief from the grinding poverty that they had been experiencing when they were receiving assistance. The jobs that they found were often kind of service sector jobs, um, home health aides, working in fast food, taking care of children, um, not well-paid work, not stable work. And so they were working, but they were still poor. Starting in about 2000, 2001, and this is during the George Bush administration, so under a Republican administration, there was a realization that the promise of welfare reform was not happening. These women were doing what was expected of them, but they were still living in pretty dire poverty. And so around that time, you started to see at the federal level changes to food stamp policy that made it easier for people to apply for and to receive food stamps. And you also heard a sort of change in the language so that food stamps in particular began being talked about as, and I heard this language over and over when I was doing this research, as what's called a work support. So the idea is this is money that is subsidizing low wages, that's helping low wage workers make ends meet. And so starting in 2001, the food stamp rolls really started to rise at that point, prior to the recession, under a Republican administration, um, they rose from about 18 million people in 2001 to 27 million in 2008, and then continued to rise as the 
Great Recession took hold as more people lost their jobs um, during the Obama administration. They hit their peak in around 2012 at 47 million Americans. And even though we've had an official economic recovery from the Great Recession, those numbers haven't fallen all that far. They're still pretty close to that historic high, serving just under 40 million in the last few years. So what we've seen is that welfare benefits that used to support people when they were out of work, offering some basic, very minimal you know, poverty level existence for people when they were out of work has now been transformed into what I call work subsidies, wage subsidies, so that the two biggest means tested welfare programs, means tested means you have to have a certain income in order to qualify for them. Um, so food stamps and the earned income tax credit, both of those are tied to work. The in earned income tax credit is tied entirely to work. So you have to be working in order to get it. And it's aimed at low income folks to subsidize those low wages that they're earning. But food stamps is increasingly taking that same form so that food stamps has become this program that politicians will say, yes, yes, we want people to get it. It's a work support. Working people deserve it. And what's happened is that you have a situation where Many millions of low-income families are relying on food stamps, even though they have people in their households working. And then you have a group of people who are outside of the labor force who are basically kept from any kind of benefits at all. Um, to use sort of the old Marxist term, what we're creating is a real reserve army of labor who is excluded from benefits, excluded from work, and who are so desperate and in such deep poverty that they'll take really any job under any conditions. So what happens to the social contract when it is no longer that society needs to cooperate in order to get the benefits from the state, and it turns into, if you want those benefits from the state, you have to work for them? How does that change the relationship between citizen and state, and is that, is, uh, that kind of social contract sustainable? Um. I would argue no, and I think the way it really changes citizenship, and I'm so glad you asked that, is that it redefines citizenship in some ways. So, you know, starting in the Great Depression with the New Deal, in through the war on poverty in the 1970s, and then up into the 1970s when we had a huge expansion of food stamps at that period as well, there was this idea that being a citizen in the United States meant that you had a right to certain things, certain economic rights. There was a floor that you couldn't fall below. Um, and when we look at that expansion of food stamps that began in the late 1960s and into the early 1970s, what was fueling that expansion was a very different idea of citizenship than what we're seeing today. So, in 1968, uh, Robert Kennedy went on his famous poverty tour. He toured parts of Appalachia, the Deep South. And what he saw and what he documented at that time was real uh, severe hunger and mal malnutrition, the kind of hunger that looks like you know, swollen bellies, wounds that won't heal, particularly among children. There was a documentary at that time called Hunger in America that was aired on national television that brought some of these findings to people living across the United States. And this is 1968. This was the era of, you know, the United States was called the affluent society. There was a sense that wealth was really, you know, 
eradicated in the United States, that people were living very well. And to see that kind of poverty was really shocking and jarring to a lot of people in the U.S. at that time. It was also a time where there were a lot of social movements that were pushing for an expansion of citizenship rights, particularly among African Americans. So this is coming after the civil rights movement. You had smaller movements that grew out of that, like the National Welfare Rights Organization, which, which was a group of primarily black women who were pushing for a universal basic income, arguing that that kind of economic right was part of the rights of citizenship. It actually came very, very close to being enacted during the Nixon administration in the early 70s. Um, so in this moment where people become aware that there are people who are starving in the U.S., that was shocking to people's conscience. And I think the idea that you could have American citizens who were hungry seemed intolerable. In fact, Richard Nixon himself called it intolerable. Um, so in that moment, you see very swiftly, very quickly, a move to expand the food stamp program, to make it a federal food program, um, to make sure that it was enacted in every state and every county in the U.S. really gave it its modern form. And that's another point where the roles rose exponentially, primarily because you had people who had a general sense that citizenship meant if you lived in the United States and you were a citizen here, you should have access to a basic modicum of security, including economic security. This all changes in the 1980s. When Reagan comes into office, you have business sort of organizing together to push back against some of the social gains of the previous century very successfully, what you referred to before as neoliberalism, that era. And part of that was pushing back against the gains in the social safety net. So the shape that this takes and, and why the social safety net is so different now is primarily because it's no longer the idea that if you're a citizen, if you're living in the United States, there's a floor that you shouldn't be able to fall below, right? That you have some sort of economic rights to a basic modicum of just being able to live, a right to food, um, not a right to housing. That's not something we ever necessarily had, but food, which is so fundamental to being able to live. What you have is... A, a shift towards those being things, those benefits being things that have to be earned through work. And so what happens is that employers have much more power in defining who's a citizenship, who's a citizen and who's not. People who don't have employment actually fall out of the compact of citizenship of having food on the table, of having some modicum of being able to live a life. And what happens is that feeds into the low-wage economy as a whole, right? So when you are able to exclude a group of people, a group of citizens from that social compact, what that does is that creates differences even among the very lowest tiers of the economic ladder so that you have people who are a little bit better off, right, able to have a minimum wage job, get food stamps, get the earned in income tax credit, and live, uh, even if it's not even if it's still in poverty. And then you have a group of people who are excluded entirely, who serve as basically a warning to everybody else. If you're not working, this is what can happen to you. What we've seen since the passage of welfare reform in the 90s is a substantial increase in the number of people in the United States living on less than $2 a day. And what happens is there is an overall sense, even though that's a smaller number of people, that that's a possibility, that kind of dire, desperate poverty is something that can happen to you. And that disciplines the rest of the labor force. Um, I met many people when I was doing this research who were 
say, would say over and over, I just need a job. I just don't want to end up on the street. And we know that's a population that exists. That's a reality in the United States today. And it sparks fear in people just a little bit higher up the ladder. If you would love a way to financially support this show without it costing you anything, there's good news. You can support the show by bookmarking and using my affiliate link every time you shop with that company online. You know, basically the one company online. Lots of evil tendencies, owned by the richest dude in the world, that one. Chances are you shop there at least now and then, maybe even a lot. Perhaps you make a lot of business-related purchases, I know some of you do. Or maybe you have a standard selection of home goods you get delivered regularly. In any case, you might have some mixed feelings about it, and you'd be right to. But if you do end up using the site, at least you can help siphon off some of that corporate blood money to help support the production of this show. Your shopping experience will be identical to usual, and it won't cost you a dime more. You can get the affiliate link from the show notes on the device you're using to listen right now, or you can find it on the sidebar of the homepage at bestofleft.com. You can bookmark the link so you can set it and forget it while continuing to support us into the future. It helps more than you think, I promise it does, and the more who join in, the more it helps. So thanks for taking the time. Corporate media's image of Social Security is, at times quite literally, a gray-haired couple stacking pennies and smiling. Silly in multiple ways, that image, along with much of the accompanying reporting, renders invisible the millions of Social Security recipients who have a disability, not all of whom are seniors. Media marginalization of disabled people partly explains the near lack of coverage when, just in time for the holidays, the Trump administration proposed a rule change that would make accessing Social Security disability insurance and supplemental security income benefits even harder than it already is. The agency offered no medical or scientific justification for the departure from past practice, but they did suggest that they will get billions of dollars from it somehow. Alex Lawson is the executive director of the group Social Security Works. He joins us now by phone from Washington, D.C. Welcome to Counterspin, Alex Lawson. Thanks for having me. Well, we know that there's more at work here than this one rule change. It's bad enough on its own, but it's part of something bigger. First of all, though, what's the nature of this change that is being pushed right now? Basically, it's putting up bureaucratic hurdles in front of people who are already faced with proving their eligibility for their own earned benefits in an incredibly difficult system, which is the disability insurance portion of Social Security. We have incredibly stringent requirements on the disability benefits that are part of Social Security. What this would do is make people who have received the benefits, they've proven their eligibility, reprove themselves over and over and over again, sometimes as much as every six months. And this is an incredibly arduous process, though. That's what they do. But the goal of it is actually to get people to give up. And that's exactly what happened when Ronald Reagan did this. And it led to tens of thousands of people dying 
And when their denials or when they were kicked off their benefits, their benefits were ripped out of their hands, and when that was looked at, around 60% of the people who had their benefits stolen from them were found to have wrongly had their benefits stolen from them and were put back on. But in the meantime, you had tens of thousands of people die. Now, if you're being really generous, you could say that Ronald Reagan didn't know what was going to happen when he did this, but now... That's why Mick Mulvaney is pushing Donald Trump to do it. Mick Mulvaney is a student of Ronald Reagan, and he's the architect of this policy in the Trump White House. Well, yeah, I mean, stories say that changes might possibly lead to people losing benefits or that critics say they would. And that time's passed. You know, the sun's going to rise in the east and increasing barriers to benefits is not going to weed out people illegitimately taking benefits. It will kick people off of the rolls who need them to live. We don't talk about that or need to talk about that as a maybe, possibly, questionably might be a side effect, right? Exactly. And I mean, I think you can even go a little bit further. We've been putting in our demands and I would encourage your listeners to as well. You mentioned that the administration says that this would, quote unquote, save billions of dollars. Well, the way you calculate billions of dollars is you know how many people's benefits are going to be ripped out of their pockets. And we're demanding that we say how many people are going to lose their benefits according to your projections that will quote-unquote save X billions of dollars. So they're giving it in dollar figures, but behind those dollar figures are people. And we're saying we want this administration to knowingly say that they are taking benefits away from hundreds of thousands of people. It seems relevant to note, as I learned from Talk Poverty, that thanks to a 2017 rule change, it's already easier for Social Security to say that a person is medically improving and therefore no longer needs benefits because now the agency can disregard evidence from the beneficiary's own doctors. You know, they've been working on this for a while, you know. But I did want to say there are plenty of problems with Social Security coverage in general, which I know you understand. It's presented as pitting old people against young people. We're told it's about to go bankrupt. But for those who aren't living it themselves or their family or their friends, there's an additional fog around Social Security disability. And in that fog, I think two big presumptions thrive, that somehow those benefits cost a lot to the country or to quote-unquote taxpayers, and then also that it's easy to qualify for those benefits and therefore there's a lot of fraud. I don't want you to waste a lot of time on it, but can we put paid to those myths? Definitely. The first one is really important because what they generally, they being the corporate media and the greedy liars on Wall Street, who are the ones who are always after our Social Security. They just can't stand that they can't get their greedy little hands on our Social Security. There is only one Social Security. It's a suite of insurance products that we pay for during our working lives. We pay for it. No one gives us anything when it comes to Social Security. We pay for it We see it coming out of our paycheck. It protects us against the loss of wages. A lot of people fully understand when we retire, most people sort of 
visualize that portion when they think Social Security. But the truth is, about a third of the benefits are actually, we are also insured, workers are insured and their families, against the loss of wages due to a life-altering event and a person becomes disabled and can no longer work, or in the case of the death of a breadwinner of a family, for the surviving minor children. And those two portions of Social Security insurance are just part of the whole thing. So you can't say, oh, we're just going after the disability portion. That's Social Security. So they see it as the weakest part. They see it as the part that people don't understand well enough to know that if we let Washington, D.C., take our benefits away at all, it means they can take all our benefits away in the future. And let me be clear, that's exactly what they want to do. This is part of a decades-long campaign to destroy, to either steal in so-called privatization, or to destroy the Social Security system so that there's no other alternative besides Wall Street. And that's what it all comes down to. Greedy liars on Wall Street can't stand how well Social Security works. Less than one penny of every dollar that goes into the system pays for administering the entire thing. So 99 cents of every dollar paid in comes back in the form of benefits. A Wall Street hedge funder, private equity guy, looks at that and says, I would tack on another 25, 30% as my fee so that I could buy a golden yacht or another golden yacht or whatever they do with their money. They see the efficiency of Social Security and they want to destroy it. When you say steal, that's not hyperbole because, again, this is what we pay into. It's not taking from, I think, a lot of sort of you know, if you just read it as ideology and sometimes media present it as though it's just about your worldview, it makes it sound like, oh, people are saying folks who have a lot should give folks to who don't have. That's not what's happening. This is, in fact, our money. This is our money. We earned it. And if we let our benefits be taken away, if we let them cut our benefits, if we let them alter the COLA, the cost of living adjustment down, all of that is literally reaching into our pockets and stealing our money. Nobody is giving us anything when it comes to Social Security. Well, I've seen some good reporting on it. The Nashville Tennessean did their own investigation of some of the doctors that are hired to review these disability claims, and they found them racing through the paperwork at what is called an implausible pace. In other words, they were reviewing them so fast that they couldn't help but be wrongfully rejecting claims. But continuing on media, and finally, I just saw a Philadelphia Inquirer story that talked about what we're talking about, and then said, Social Security officials declined to comment. And you know, they don't have to comment. If no one pays attention, it's going to go through without their comment. But Doctors are commenting, recipients are commenting, advocates are commenting, and the public comment period has been extended from January 17th to January 31st. But you're talking about in the Reagan era when pushback worked, public pushback is what's going to work. So what do we need to know about that? That's exactly right. We know exactly what happened in the Reagan era is that it was because of people raising their voices that this was rejected 
It was overruled unanimously by the Congress. So what we want to do is stop it before it's even implemented. And to do that, we want people to write in their comments in the public comment period on the rule, which you can just go to socialsecurityworks.org, and there's a link right there to take you directly to where you should go to put in your comment. We also want everyone to contact their members of Congress. Also, we think the comment period should be extended because something you said is absolutely true. They're trying to do this in the dead of night behind closed doors so that no one knows what's going on. And the more we can drag it into the sunlight, the more we can force them to defend the fact that they're proposing stealing our benefits, the less they're going to want to do it. And we think that we can defeat them if we can extend the comment period, if we can flood the comments with real people's voices saying no, and if we can get our members of Congress. And again, this is both parties. Social Security is not a partisan issue. Right. So whoever your members of Congress are, contact them and tell them, say no to stealing our Social Security benefits. clean up the welfare state. Oh yeah, so this is a separate this is a separate topic but it's of course it's relevant because yeah. it has to do with um you know Bernie Sanders sort of broader broader political vision and the Democrats failure to have any sort of vision whatsoever. Um so this is just based on a, a paper that Matt Brunig wrote uh, called Cleaning Up the Welfare State, which he published in uh, the People's Policy Project. And I thought it was really good. And so I wanted to take a moment to look at it in Jacobin. So I wrote an article called How to Clean Up the Welfare State. I obviously plagiarized his title. Um, and, you know, this is my this is something that I am on about a lot. I, I talk about this a lot. The United States has a very underappreciated welfare state. We do have a welfare state, you know, of, of, a, of a sort, you know, we certainly do a lot of public spend, there's a lot of public expenditure. It doesn't necessarily rise to the level of what you might positively call social spending or sort of like direct social spending. A lot of it is very indirect, you know, like, um, like tax, like tax cuts and tax credits. Right. Um, and or like subsidies and vouchers and all sorts of complicated little maneuvers like that. So this is a problem in 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 my view and in the view of a lot of people on the socialist left is in other countries, they have more robust welfare states that actually scan as like a single welfare state. And it's like, yeah, we pay a large portion of our income to the state. And that's a collective investment. And in return, we get the provision of the basic necessities of life. And we don't have to worry about stuff. And because we're pooling our money together to do that, we're actually getting more than we would if we paid for it individually, because it sort of has an exponential effect, right? Like, uh, like I personally with my money can't pay for, you know, um, you know, to cover all of my needs in, you know, X, Y, or Z department. But if we were to pay the, you know, government to do it and then democratically decide what the government should do and what the program should look like, then we could all have, you know, our health care covered or unemployment insurance or, uh, you know, um, you know, paid, paid, you know, parental leave policies, these things like that. So there's a, there's a welfare state problem in the United States, which is that instead we have a lot of very meager, means tested programs that people don't really think of as being related to each other. Right. And 
each one of them is like very difficult to navigate. And that's actually on purpose because the reason to implement means tested programs over universal programs is to drop people from the rosters. It's to, um, you know, allow people to fall through the cracks, which actually results in, you know, reduced social spending. And it's a perfect little compromise maneuver for the Democratic Party because they can say, look, we are the ones who are like advancing these programs, whether it's like SNAP or WIC or whatever. And, you know, that means we care about these problems, but they're means tested to bits and not everybody is eligible. In fact, very few people are eligible. And even if you are eligible, you constantly have to prove eligibility. And if you fail to prove eligibility, then you're going to get mysteriously dropped from the roles. You might not even know it. Um, Right. And so it's very difficult for people to actually navigate them, which saves money. And for Democrats, this is what they want to do. They want to uh, show people that they care about stuff while also balancing budgets in a way that allows them to give tax breaks to their donor class, their donor base. Right. So this is a this, so their uh, Democrats are obsessed with means tested programs. They're very resistant to universal social programs. Now, in there is a sort of paradox here because, or there are exceptions to the rule. In the US welfare state, there are a couple of programs that are widely beloved and that are understood and you know broadly um, appreciated by the public and therefore have a built-in constituency that protects them from onslaught from the right. And the more universal the programs are, the more likely they are to fall into this category. So, so Social Security and Medicare are the two greatest examples of this, oh, but also like public education, for example. Um, so, um, so Matt's idea is that, you know, obviously we would like to move toward universal programs in general. For example, Matt Brunig obviously is a huge advocate of Medicare for all, right? Just expanding Medicare so that it covers everybody and improving it so that it covers everything. But he also has some short-term ideas for how to actually like tidy up the welfare state so that it's not this kind of extremely labyrinthine, complicated, means-tested, lumbering, bureaucratic thing that nobody really understands and nobody really loves and nobody really will fight to defend, which makes it very politically vulnerable. And so he wanted to write this paper to basically like introduce some ideas for like short term reforms that could just kind of like tidy it up a little bit. Um, a lot of the things that he comes up with, and I'm not going to run through them all, though I do recommend if you're interested in this, that you go read my article or read Matt's paper on this. But a lot of the things that Matt is recommending is like eliminating these cumbersome eligibility requirements and just like clearing away red tape and making it easier to both understand programs and access their benefits and, and making it so that the programs cover more people with fewer headaches. Because one once you start to do that to the American welfare state, you might start to get more popular buy-in into the welfare state itself, which is going to create, like I said before, a constituency that can be mobilized to defend that welfare state against assault from the right wing. The Democrats have failed to build a constituency that can protect the welfare state. In fact, they have purposely designed the welfare state in a way that suppresses enthusiasm for it, which means that they have failed to protect it from assault from the right. So this is an indictment uh, more than anything else of the, of the Democrats and the way that they've the way that they've totally screwed the pooch on building a welfare state that can withstand attack.
We've just heard clips today, starting with the real news, breaking down some of the highlights of Trump's budget, including the ever-rising military budget and ever more cruel and stupid cuts to programs that actually help people. Now this news explained Trump's brazen lying about protecting Medicare, no surprise there. Off-Kilter discussed how the math in the Trump budget is actually cooking the books in order to hide how much they're really planning on cutting. This is Hell looked at how the design of our safety net programs fundamentally alters how people see them and relate to them. Counterspend discussed the new rule being proposed to restrict access to Social Security disability benefits. And finally, the Majority Report explored why universal benefit programs are built to inspire strong support among citizens, just what we need to keep them going strong. Members will be hearing a continuation of one of today's clips that goes into detail explaining the disconnect between the economic metrics that we always hear about, like the unemployment rate and people's actual lived experiences. To hear that and all of our bonus content, which also includes more voicemails and commentary from me, plus ad-free versions of every regular episode, sign up as a patron of the show at patreon.com slash left. And now, we'll hear from you. Hey, Jay, it's Alan from Connecticut calling in on your last episode and your conversation regarding Barbara's voicemail, except for I don't think you went far enough. And uh, the point I think you're missing out on here is because I think a lot of people might say, whether they listen to the show or people otherwise, like, so what? That was 2016. This is 2020. And, And my cautionary tale is this can exactly happen again. We can, as progressives or as Democrats in general, get so polarized over candidates that the same notion of well, if my candidate is not going to be the nominee, then I'm just not going to show up in the polls in November. And I think that's a lot of what happened. I've heard it. There a lot of people that said, yeah, I didn't want Trump to be president, but I just couldn't cast a vote for Hillary Clinton. And my stance has always been, if you don't vote for Hillary Clinton, you are in, sen- in, in essence voting for Trump. And I could see that same scenario happening this election. We saw it in the caucuses in Iowa, people caucusing for their for their candidate. And when that had to be realigned, they left. They didn't recast their vote. So this is still very much a concern and could very much still play out, regardless of who the top two candidates end up being. So I think that's a huge cautionary tale of how we deal with primaries and how we have to keep people showing up for the polls because ultimately it's my understanding that in November if we don't get enough votes out the bottom line is it's going to be a a Republican uh, win again and I think that's that's got to be the caution and that's got to be the message anyway that's my two cents stay awesome Hello, Jay. This is V from Central New York. I had fallen behind significantly on your your wonderful podcast episodes. I am glad to say over the past few weeks, I have been listening to dozens of them, actually. Some that 
obviously are are new and then others that are significantly older some of my favorites from 2013 and 12 and 08 and 09 and the last year of George W. Bush's nightmarish president. But I did not call to walk down memory lane. There is a powerful theme I am starting to pick up on. I'm not sure if this is coincidental, if this is deliberate, or if this is just incidental. But there is a theme that I'm starting to pick up on as I'm listening to your newer episodes. There is this sense of emergency, this sense of necessity to not only talk or, in your sense, present information which helps people understand the binds which our society finds itself in, but also an urgency in needing to find solutions to those binds. I am very, very happy to say that every time when I have recommended your podcast, I have been able to say that you present information that educates as well as often entertains. This has become increasingly more prevalent as we have moved through the last three years. Your podcast has become dramatically more educational. And sometimes at the expense of entertainment, but often also with some entertaining qualities. Again, I don't know if this is deliberate or if this is accidental, but it is absolutely one of the most enjoyable parts of your podcast. Now, in the spirit of that emergency, as you know, I read a lot I have always read significantly I would like to offer to your uh, listeners another great author but also a book that he wrote several years ago he has passed on his name is Seymour Melman Seymour Melman M-E-L-M-A-N if I remember correctly and the book which he wrote is called After capitalism after capitalism in listening to your older episodes from 2010 and i'd even say 2009 but definitely 10 and 11 you spoke a lot about non-consumption or moving beyond consumerism this was a great foreshadowing of where we are presently when consumerism needs to be absolutely phased out and capitalism needs to be abandoned. Your listeners hopefully appreciate that foresight and thus will appreciate a book such as After Capitalism. Please, please, please keep up the great work to all of your listeners. I hope they are all subscribing to you on Patreon. I am a Patreon member. And I encourage everybody who I send to your podcast to also sign up on Patreon. Jay, it's been great. Keep up the great work, man. Peace. Hey, Jay, it's James out of uh, 
Citrus here in Sacramento. How you doing? Love the show. My favorite, as usual. Um, to comment on uh, what someone said about um, good old Bernie and um, um, and Hillary, and I thought about this, and you know, I think the reason that she lost was basically she wasn't a populist. Bernie read what good old uh, Trump was going for. He was going for a populist vibe. And he realized that's his that's his gig. He's a populist big time. So that's why he threw in. Um, he knew she wasn't, you know. And that's why uh, we have to have Bernie. Uh, that's why he is the most electable. The, what, the person that's most electable in this uh, coming up, and this is what people want. That's why people voted for Trump, because um, he supposedly was a populist. He's not. You and I know this now. He gave a big tax cut to, um, he hasn't done anything for working people, and he's not. Gave a great big tax cut to the rich. No, he's not. A, he's a fake populist. Bernie's a real populist, and that's why. I um, mean, even even uh, um, Steve Bannon said that you know on the Bill Maher show that uh, basically he should have had it. It should have been um, Trump versus uh, Bernie. You know, left wing populist versus a right wing populist, because he knows. That's why he is definitely the the person that is the most populist is the one that is going to be. That is most electable. That will beat Donald Trump. Um, when people see Bernie versus Trump, they'll realize who the who the real who the real populist is, and and that's what they want. And that's what people need after forty years of hypercapitalism. You know, we we are due for to get out of this um, uh, basically the new Gilded Age and get into a new age of progressivism. That's why this is Bernie's time. Okay, thank you. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our production assistant, Joel McKean, who helps gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. So I I got at least a small comment for uh, all the messages we just heard. Uh, first, Alan and his cautionary tale. Of course, we're all concerned about disgruntled voters not voting in the general election. My hope, I don't have data to back this up, but my hope for the relationship between the primary election and the general is that people are so dead set on voting for anyone to beat Trump that they're actually more passionate about the general than the primary. And so they're they're less passionate, they're less excited about choosing a candidate, especially because we have more than two. Like last time, we pretty much only had two candidates and people could file themselves into one category or the other. Now there, there's a bigger range and people are like, look, whatever, just give me one. Give me one and I'll vote for them. But they're not necessarily passionate enough about anyone in this bigger group to go campaign or to even go vote or to caucus or do any of those things. And so excitement about the primary is lagging a little bit, which is concerning. But my hope is it's because people have been beaten down. They're so exhausted of politics, as I think we all are. That they think, like, look, I don't even have the energy to care about the primary 
just tell me who the nominee is eventually going to be, and that's who I'm going to go vote for. That I have the energy for. Anyway, that, that's just my hope. Uh, next up, V from New York. Uh, you know, thanks for the kind comments, as always. He, he said that the show has been more educational recently. I have a theory on that. I, I mean, I think the show is more educational because I know more now than I did 10 years ago. So I'm better at curating interesting and insightful and educational stuff that I would have missed before. And I agree. I think I think it is a little less entertaining like comedy wise but uh, th- there's a variety of reasons for that as well and and then he mentioned that i you know i used to talk a lot more about anti-consumerism which is something i still very much believe in but that's a classic example of one of those topics that it's really hard to rationalize prioritizing right now during a period like the trump administration you know i i, I talked about you know, one of the reasons why I thought it was worthwhile to vote for Hillary Clinton over Trump, and I was making that argument at the time, is because administrations like the Obama administration or like how the Clinton administration would have been, is that it, it, it gives breathing room. You, like, you still need to, need to do progressive organizing. You still need to try to pull people to the left. You tr- still need to try to, you know, implement more uh, progressive policies than you know, that that uh, president may naturally want to implement, but it gives breathing room. It gives breathing room to movements like Occupy Wall Street or Black Lives Matter, or in my case, I was able to talk pretty freely about anti-consumerism and mindfulness and all, all these kinds of things, which are great, but when kids are being put in cages or people are proposing budgets that slash support for the poor so much that people are going to die, you know, talking about not buying so much stuff is a bit crass, you know? So we, we need to get ourselves to a better state of politics, not just because of sort of improving the baseline status quo, but because when you have a better status quo, like a, a, a better baseline, it, it allows for all this extra breathing room to explore new and interesting and exciting ideas. And under the Trump administration, everything feels like an emergency to be dealt with. And then last one, uh, in response to James, I, you know, I think, I think James's analysis of the need for a genuinely populist candidate is, is pretty much right on. The only thing I disagree with is that he talked about how Bernie got into the 2016 race because he saw that to face Trump, we needed a real populist. I don't believe that the timeline supports that uh, at the time that Bernie got into the race, either. I, I believe very early 2016, maybe very late um, 2015, there was no indication that Trump was going to win. And really no one thought that that was going to be the case, but I, I do want to, share something from February 2016 from Jim Hightower, who tells the story of a Bernie rally that he attended. When I crossed paths with a Democratic campaign consultant in Austin last March, I suggested he come to the local IBEW hall to hear Bernie, adding that the Vermont senator was pondering a run for the presidency. You gotta be kidding me, he snorted. Bernie Sanders? Let me tell you, 
His chances are slim and none, and slim don't live in Bernie's precinct. First of all, no one south of Greenwich Village ever heard of him. Second, who's going to vote for some old senator from a tiny state of Birkenstock wares damn near in Canada? So he was a no-show. But we didn't have room for him anyway. The hall would seat 200, but nearly 500 Texans showed up that night to hear the undiluted populist message of this senator, quote, no one ever heard of. Austin was one of the stops on a cross-country trip that Bernie was taking to assess whether an unabashedly progressive, movement-building presidential campaign could rally any substantial support. If he ran, he intended to go right at the moneyed elites who thoroughly corrupted our politics and rigged our economy to squeeze the life out of the middle class. But would anyone follow? He wasn't sure, and even if it might work, he assumed it would be a slow build. I was to introduce him at the Austin event, and as we worked our way from the parking lot, waving to the overflow group gathered outside, shaking hands with people standing in the hallway and stairwell, then squeezing through the jam-packed crowd in the auditorium, I said to him, Something is happening here. He nodded and said in an astonished whisper, Something is happening. This is Jim Hightower saying that surprisingly big night in Austin was a precursor to what would soon become the Sanders sensation a people-powered movement that has already shattered the Democratic establishment's holy myth that corporate centrism and super PAC money are the only means to victory. By going straight to the people, Bernie is showing another way. So we've been having this ongoing discussion about Bernie and his supporters and whether the support for him is is legitimate and grassroots and all those sorts of things. And and all of this reminds me of an old saying that I think everyone's probably heard some version of or another. It's been repeated many times by many people. But basically, the idea that those who seek power are the ones least suited to govern. And what makes people like Bernie and similarly Elizabeth Warren— different is that they never expected to be electable. They didn't design their lives and their policies with the idea of higher office. And Bernie, uh, you know, clearly has not crafted his, his career or his policies to be palatable to the mainstream. His goal has always only been to pull the Overton window to the left by being far outside of it. And then unexpectedly, the Overton window sort of caught up with him, and he didn't even realize, as he began to run for president, he didn't even realize how much support that he was going to be able to enjoy. And yet he still insists now that it's not about him, it's about the movement, because I don't think that he ever planned on running for president or having any chance of winning. And so... It's not about you know personal power that way, and, and his movement still reflects that. As I said, Elizabeth Warren is the other candidate who has been lifted into her current position by a genuine groundswell of support for the work she was doing rather than a personal desire for power. And just to cut this off before it comes up, one could argue something similar about Buttigieg, but... It, it really is different. His support doesn't come from the work that he was doing. It's not like the people found him and said, the work he's doing is so amazing, we need him. 
he was basically grown in a petri dish and hand selected by the Democratic Party to attract moderate Democratic voters. So yeah, he's enjoyed a groundswell of support, and the people who support him, I have no doubt of of their genuine intentions. But still, it's artificial. That doesn't make him a bad person or anything. It just means that he he doesn't meet that same criteria for those best suited to govern. He has crafted basically his whole life to try to run for higher office. On the other hand, there's nothing artificial about Bernie. I think pretty much everyone recognizes that. And Warren is at her best when she is being her true self. And she only begins to falter when you start to be able to see the the political strategist peeking through the cracks. So if you have thoughts on this or anything else, as always, I would love to hear it. Keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And now, of course, we'll wrap up with everyone's favorite news by Limerick and obviously at Liberix on Twitter has had something to say about the GOP budget. Republicans often condemn high debt as repugnant to them and surely will claim the Prez is to blame the minute the Prez is a dim. (laughs) 